Welcome to the Cloud Native Rejects podcast with our hosts, Kinvolk CTO, Vincent Batts, and Mark Coleman, Director of Developer Relations at Equinix Model. This podcast series will focus on the iconoclastic inventors behind the Cloud Native revolution. These are the people who think different, who reject the status quo, and in so doing, dare to risk rejection. In the words of Steve Jobs, while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius because the people who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. On today's episode, we have Alex Ellis. Alex is a respected expert in serverless and cloud native computing. He founded OpenFaz, one of the most popular open source serverless projects where he has built a community via writing, speaking, and extensive personal engagement. As a consultant and CNCF ambassador, he helps companies around the world build great developer experiences and navigate the cloud native landscape. Um, so Alex, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, I wanted to first start with one of the questions that we ask a lot of our guests, which is how you got into software in the first place. I think for software, it's difficult to say whether you mean software development or using software, but the earliest computers I remember were things like the Acorn that I used at school. And then we got our own computer at home, Pentium 1. And I remember quite often trying to install Red Hat Linux and other things like that on it. What would happen is we'd then have to phone my uncle and he'd have to come around and fix it again. (laughs) (laughs) So that's quite an early memory of feeling guilty for breaking the dual booting. Why were you dual booting at the time? I wanted to install Linux and play with it. That version of Red Hat, maybe Red Hat 5, had a start bar that looked a bit like the Windows 95 one. I was just into that kind of thing. And I did quite a lot of helping out at school, fixing computers, replacing floppy disk drives, installing printers, doing hardware. And I remember one day discovering VB3 and bootlegging a copy on a floppy disk to my house. And the thing that I built was a login screen. I just really wanted to make a login screen. So that was one of the earliest programs that I made. One of the uh, one of the things that comes up time and time again with guests on here is that they've all started their relationship with software uh, in the home. We've yet to have someone going to their uncle for um, dual booting support, but we have had a couple of guests, I think, having to go down the street to a neighbor to get their autoexec.bat fixed. Uh, so it seems breaking family computers is a, is a bit of a theme here. At a certain point, you ended up studying computer science at Queen Mary University of London. Did you always know you were going to do that? I don't know that I was that excited or or enthusiastic in getting a degree, but I was aware that it was going to be a prerequisite for getting a job, at least at the time. I graduated in 2006, so 2002, 2003, that was the thinking at the time that to work as a software developer, you would need that, as sort of used to call it dismissively, piece of paper. I don't remember sort of, really dreaming of studying computer science because I was already doing it. By that point, I was quite fluent in a number of programming languages and I didn't really see the point of it, but knew that I needed it. So I went there and studied. But the journey up to that point involved a lot of network and hardware administration because 13 to 15, people wouldn't take me seriously for software And so hardware was the only thing I could do, whether that was a summer job or an internship or or whatever it was. So things like the Cisco CCNA, which I think is still around today, 
learning about VLANs and switches and stuff like that. So it was a bit of a, a bit of a journey. And then as I got deeper into the networking, that's probably where the Linux side of things came in. And I was able to go and uh, compile a kernel so that I could use a USB webcam and set up DHCP services and things like that. Do you remember what your first space of like actual open source contributions or foray into a community was? Obviously, was using open source software since I was breaking the family computer because that was Linux, right? Going on forums, chatting in news groups. But um, one of the first open source projects that I created was a Cluedo project. It was a second year software engineering team project. And the Cluedo that we built could support different maps, it had sound effects, all Java-based. And I was incredibly proud of the network capability that I'd built. And I just remember the supervisor being really annoyed because I'd used threading and talking about how much of a problem it is when you use threading in applications and <laughs> not to do those things. But I, the code's still on there on SourceForge now. And sometimes, even last year, someone asked me for technical support on it. <laughs> <laughs> there's a static page you can find with the updates that I was writing. So even back then I was releasing software and writing little updates and, and instructions of how to download it and use it. I think in one of the earlier episodes I shared with somebody how excited I was, or one of the things that made me excited about getting into computing, which was reading John Carmack's dot plan files, where he'd essentially blog about what was happening in, I suppose, the Quake engine or something at that time. Who were you looking up to when all this was happening? It's difficult to say, really. We didn't really have this kind of hacker news culture back then where you'd be reading all of these blog posts from regular people and from famous people and startups and what have you. I do kind of remember looking at what Zamarin were doing and emailing Miguel. He never replied to that. (laughs) They had this piece of software that indexed the hard drive and I was just fascinated with it. It was a bit like Spotlight on the Mac. It would index all your files. And as part of my final year project, I created something that did indexing. And it was TF-IDF. It was was quite quite a project. But the, the thing that I remember is the supervisor that I had, William, he was very good at academic writing. And it turned out that I wasn't. And so I would go there with my drafts and he would put a lot of red pen on it and be highly critical and sort of explain to me how academic writing had to be. And remember one point I put um, something like this, the striking point is, or, you know, this is striking about the feature. And he said, take that out, let the point strike them. And so it was just little bits and pieces like that, that I'd pick up. And he was a very much a less is more kind of person. And so he would, he would always have quite brief slides and not overload them and that's something that stuck with me those little phrases and um, approaches that have really helped me in, in what I do now it's very apparent your focus on people and how people use things and kind of the use cases that help fill in gaps of like it'd be really great if there was x you know this was easier whether it was in the days of docker swarm and like all the different serverless pieces that have come after where and how did you get so focused on kind of the, the person experience? Where, where did that come from or how did that curate grow for you? I don't actually know. I think perhaps that was just a technique that I picked up on and just doubled down on it at a guess. Because 
for quite a long time, I was working at ADP, a enterprise software company with a lot of what we call like career developers. And at that point, the skills that they came in with aren't necessarily as relevant or as innovative or creative as as people that would come into the market now. And so if I wanted to launch an internal project to improve something, I'd have to really make it as absolutely as easy as possible to do because people want to develop their line of business applications. They want to ship stuff and get a a 4.0 on their yearly report. And so they don't care about trying something that generates Jenkins jobs automatically when they can click a button and, and spend, you know, like a few days setting it up each time. And so I think just understanding the friction that we experience initially when we develop software and solutions we forget about it. We get used to it. We sort of get um, to a point where we don't see it anymore. And so what we have to do is if we want people to try stuff and not to have that pain and, and experience that friction is do what we can to remove it. And that that's kind of how I look at it. There's another project, slightly more modern, maybe 20, it was launched 2019, very early 2019 called Inlets. And whilst I was at ADP, I'd always wanted to get remote access to things and it was very difficult to use anything like Engrock or you just wouldn't be able to run a VPN or even SSH. And whilst I didn't develop inlets at the time, we sort of alluded to the fact that I'd worked at VMware for, for a bit as well. My team at VMware were developing OpenVAS and we wanted to get webhooks for a CI add-on. We just do builds of your code and like in the GitOps style. We couldn't get webhooks and the managers wouldn't allow us uh, any money for cloud or if they would it was only for one person and or you know how enterprise companies are so i just remember over christmas just noodling on the idea and thinking you know what if i had a web socket that it talked out it could go over a http proxy then i could do that to a cheap vm use the vm's ip address run the server there and securely get my webhooks so I gave it a go and the initial version was pretty hideous it kind of worked and then I tried something that had basic auth and I wasn't copying the header it was really slow and then every now and then it would just completely break but the kernel of the idea was there and I remember a guy Richard Gee I said look this isn't production ready and he said yeah but when it is right and it was kind of nice to have somebody see and have that faith in me that this thing that I'd made that was really broken but actually proved a point could be made good enough for people to use it in production. And that's just another example of that, that kind of tool and that kind of problem. If it's something that I've had that I care about, then I'm motivated, potentially motivated to spend the time to fix it and then to market it and help people understand it. Coming back to the theme of rejection, what do you typically look to when you're thinking, okay, here's an idea, but I want to make it as easy as possible for people to consume? It sounds like you've been scratching a few itches, but I'm sure there'll be many people listening that would appreciate you expanding a little bit on how to make that easier. You know, in any context, whether it's within a, an enterprise or if you're trying to introduce it to an open source community. I guess it depends at what point in the life cycle is. If it's an idea, and there's nothing like it, then that could be quite a daunting place to be because you've no idea if you can make it work and you've got nobody to follow, not even to get inspiration from, whether closed or open source. If it's something that's been done before, like um, Engrock had been done before, I didn't know exactly how it worked, it wasn't open source, 
but had enough of an idea and I'd mucked about enough with SSH tunnels to get an approach and something that I could test out. And I think one thing that separates me probably from other people is that I'm willing to try things and it doesn't matter if it works out. And if it doesn't work out, it gives me something to talk about. I actually enjoy talking with other people about things that haven't worked. And I mean, when I've tried something and it's not worked, not when I get my KubeCon paper rejected. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's one of those like open conversations that I've earnest, like here's an attempt at something and my own iteration even with like, yeah, Grow Lab that you've been working in like, and like people are joining in and like actually involving construction and new ideas and like iterating on it. Everybody's building on everybody else's ideas. And it's not like, here's the one idea, go out and implement my idea. The Grow Lab, the thing is, I did this project in 2017. It might have gone on Hacker News. A bunch of people might have read the post. And I think that was about it. Right. And then another guy, Richard, had a go at it as well. And that was about it. Um, And then I thought, well, you know, what would be really nice is if we could get other people to have a go at this this time. And that's a a case of rejection because nobody was interested in it. I was tweeting about it. Nobody was reading it or replying. I put it on Reddit. The same happened. So I feel kind of like it's been rejected and it's not working. And then as you keep pushing and you get social proof and you get the first person doing stuff that isn't you, and the second person doing stuff that isn't you, and you ask your friends and family, and you bug people and you follow up, eventually start to get to the point where there's 10 people have put their name in the readme file now to say they'll participate. There's a few people that have got through the contest levels, bronze, gold, and um, silver. And we're going to do a live stream, and then maybe some more people will sign up. But this is very much what it's like, I think, as a leader, and as a creator, whether it's a product or some community initiative is always has to start at the beginning and it's always going to be lonely when you look back and you're at the front and there's no one behind you. But sometimes I think about like the open Slack community can be similar there. How do we change it by leading by example, by me and the other core contributors chatting actively there, posting issues that need help by tweeting about what we're doing on the project by submitting conference talks by testing out different use cases that's leadership leadership by example and then others see that and they want to follow but if you're not leading actively then yeah I could just create my grow lab and run it and tweet about it but I didn't want that I wanted to create a community and get other people involved And I've seen some really creative spins on the original idea. I deliberately haven't made the software that prescriptive. And that's when other people have written their own stuff as well. So that's my playbook. Yeah, I think that's a good shout, Vincent. I mean, you must, I mean, I don't know. So maybe I shouldn't say you must, but I would imagine that sometimes when you're putting these ideas out and it's getting no traction, it must be quite energy consuming, like pushing water uphill to a certain extent. Do you have any of that? Or does the playbook that you now have isolate you from it because you know that if I do these things, normally it works out, somebody picks up eventually? I'm one of these people that takes things personally. I think the word is neurotic and probably sum me up quite well as being quite sensitive, quite affected by things, particularly things people might say that are overly direct or overly nasty that they wouldn't necessarily say otherwise. I think Hacker News and Reddit. So that kind of stuff does bug me and get to me, but I think I'm quite resilient as well. 
and also somebody that can take quite a lot before breaking point. Open fast, for instance, five-year journey and haven't successfully landed my $10 million acquisition. I haven't successfully got 20 homepage sponsors sending me 40 grand a year. It's very much something that I still believe in what I'm doing now. It still scratches an itch for me. There's other people involved. But yeah, it is, it is hard work and it's a slog. And there's not one month of the year that I don't consider giving it all up. And I think an example of that would be the OpenFast Cloud add-on, the one that we were developing at VMware, where you put your code in a Git repo, it's completely automated. Then you get your function probably in less than 30 seconds. You have your dashboard, OAuth 2, some nice multi-user features. But because it was open source, because I wasn't able to do it any other way at the time, there was no motivation for any company to pay for it. So adding features to it was already quite featureful. But then I also found out that people don't like you to do CI for them. They want to have their Jenkins do it, their Buddy CI or GitHub Actions. You just don't go there. You can do the deployment part. Um, and we've worked have proven that, and you can do other stuff, but you don't do CI. And so I asked the the other people that have contributed to it quite actively, and we just decided to sunset it. And it was like admitting failure. What are some other times, especially given, unfortunately, the raw, unbridled, unasked for feedback of open source community that you faced kind of like people saying, don't do that, you're crazy, but that ended up being a great success story for you in general? OpenFast is one of those. People said, don't do that. And again, like I believe in an iterative approach. I think because uh, in my early career, really got into not Scrum, but extreme programming. And that was version of Scrum that developers would enjoy because it was all about practices and, and the approach and actually building the software rather than being micromanaged or, or long term, particularly too long-term planning. And so, yeah, it was this iterative approach. Could you, What can you create minimum viable product that would show that this thing would work and do something? That's still the approach I use now. I did it with, with OpenFAS. It wasn't even called OpenFAS. It had uh, no CLI you had to build your own Docker images. You could only deploy on, on a UI that I built that was very rudimental and took it to DockerCon eventually. Again, because I was persistent and kept following up and kept nagging the the team at Docker. Eventually they they were like, yeah, okay, uh, we're going to accept this as a cool hack, winning entry, come and talk about it on the stage. And and then people started taking it seriously, but nobody contributed at that point. Like I thought the community would just pop up overnight and production users. And again, it was a very long slog to get the first few. And one of the first things we did was build a CLI around it then enhance the UI and build a function store and a bunch of other stuff. Got some of the first commercial users, not paying, but still. And I remember one of them was like, the way that you're running Node is too slow for us. Why wouldn't we just use Kubernetes or use Docker Swarm? And that was really disappointing at the time because it felt like a failure. That's gone away now. I mean, that's not a problem anymore, but this was very early days. But I've started to normalize these sorts of rejections. And now I even get rejected by developers that have taken out a, f- a free trial of inlets and have liked it and have complained about the price or have said they'd rather do port forwarding or something. And I get that kind of rejection every day. And I would sort of say to anybody, if you're in that position, 
put it in perspective if that person's going to be worth $300 to you and may not even renew in the next year, it might not be worth your time to be upset about that. What I'm trying to do is take that approach, is make rejection part of the sales cycle. I can talk about sales. That's because I'm running my own company now. I'm not employed by another company. My job is to basically develop those projects I talked about, but also the products so that I can pay myself money. And then also, I guess, to some extent, I feel like I felt because or was rejected because people weren't paying for open fast support. They're happy to use it in production, not happy to pay for it. And so on that level, again, I had to figure out what people would pay for. And they would pay for the knowledge and the intuition of an accountability of how to create a product and launch it, how to manage a community. I've got so many questions after that last segment, but so now I'm forced to choose. So one of the things I was going to ask about was we spoke about resilience and I know that various people lean on various practices outside of perhaps work to keep them resilient. Some people meditate. I know that you're a keen cyclist. What I'd say is that I'm one of the kind of people that probably works too much and cares too much about what they do. And that that is useful for getting results and for doing impressive things or doing boring things, but executing really well on them. But it's not great for relaxing and taking time off and, and being sustainable and those practices that you talked about for sort of getting a good balance. Now, one thing that has really helped me, though, is it was mid last year, started reading Getting Real by Basecamp. Jason Fried and, and DHH have written this book about how they how they think about developing software. And it was really helpful for me because it freed me up from a lot of the things that I thought I should be doing because that's what other people would want me to be doing and ways that I should be going about. Then out of that sort of area, as I dug more into bootstrapping and and what's now called indie founders, I saw there were a lot of SaaS companies that they basically find a super niche problem like generating a video testimonial from a customer. And that's literally all it will do. And they'll charge you, I don't know, as much as they can a month, $500 a month or something like that and they'll build a business and tweet all about it and I found that they also do a lot of course authoring information products so people like I think his name's Adam Waltham that does Tailwind CSS there's David Vasilo that was an AWS engineer on I think is making like over half a million a year or on on target to make a million a year they've been really successful selling info products but they seem to apply similar philosophy of not working yourself to death, of having some balance and putting things in perspective. And then out of that, actually pretty recently, I've got it here, um, of this book, Time Off, by John Fitch and Max Frenzel. And they talk about how in sort of antiquity, time of the ancient Greeks, working was sort of seen not as it is so prestigious now, but it was seen more as something to bear, right? As almost like, it wasn't noble and noble was leisure time. It was being creative. It was having time to decompress and follow pursuits. And he sort of implies that a lot of the discoveries that were made were made made by people that had a lot of free time right, or gave themselves time off from laboring and, and sort of manual, unskilled sort of work. And that's really got me thinking about giving myself permission to maybe 
go really hard on a Tuesday and Thursday and have all these client calls and get rejected and and then maybe land some some deals as well with different companies. Do some development, maybe Wednesday, Friday. Uh, just have Monday off, right? I built a woodworking bench in my garage and my neighbor came over and I learned a lot about that. And he was quite encouraging. He said things like, I said things like, you know, oh, I haven't cut that in a straight line. He said, uh, let the saw do the work. And so I had another go and he said, see, you'll get there. You know, it won't be long and you'll be cutting in a straight line. And so, you know, that's an experience I wouldn't have had. And I think that's something else that I can apply to the software as well and to the grow lab. To begin with, it was just me. Then I started letting the saw do the work. That's what I'm doing. I'm spending a lot of time studying and learning. And that's what's helping me keep perspective, Mark. Nice. I like that very much. And I like the book recommendations. Okay, so Alex, this has been so much fun. And, and one of the things that's sort of accidentally become a theme is a combination of, I think when we kicked this off, it was around about the end of 2020 and people were starting to get into predictions. And then also on Twitter, you notice a lot of people doing unpopular opinions. So we wanted to do unpopular predictions. Now, 2021's already, you know, we're already into it. But uh, I guess we could just talk for the future moving forwards. What might be an unpopular prediction you would have about anything, really? About anything is going to be a little hard because I haven't had a chance to think about this. But the first thing that popped into my mind was a GPL software license. So we saw Minio over the weekend and I was reading my time off book by by John and Max and really trying to chill out and, and get in the zone. And then I saw a tweet from Justin Cormack going, you've contributed to Minio. How do you feel about them making AGPL now? And he just ruined my piece. So that's my unpopular uh, prediction is that MIT and Apache 2 is going to be turning over to AGPL. Ooh, you see an increase in AGPL. Well, we saw two within the space of a, of a few days. I think we're going to see more of that. Wow, wow, wow. Unpopular opinion indeed. Thank you for joining us, Alex. You can catch up with Alex on Twitter at AlexEllisUK and you can follow us at Rejects.io. That's R-E-J-E-K-S-T-I-O. Thank you.